Amen. Please remain standing. Take out your Bibles. Uh, Turn to the book of James. This morning we will be, uh, Pastor Moody will be starting a new sermon series in the book of James. And so uh, this morning's preaching passage is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James 1, 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter of James was written by James, almost certainly uh, the brother of the Lord Jesus. Probably one of the earliest of the New Testament letters, written about a decade or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus, before James, the brother of uh, Jesus, uh, was killed. James is known to history as James the Just, and he is uh, writing this letter. He calls himself a servant of God. How amazing is that? Here's James, the brother of Jesus. And he describes himself as a servant of God. Well, a lesson for us is easy, isn't it? For us to feel that we're perhaps better than other people or different than other people based upon our family connections. James, the very brother of Jesus, 
He's just a servant. Just a servant of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That too, of course, is remarkable. James, the brother of Jesus, proclaims that Jesus, his brother, is the Lord God. James is the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the word Lord is used like that in the New Testament, it reflects the Old Testament word of of Yahweh, Lord. He's worshiping Jesus. Of course, that is the heart of the Christian confession, to worship Jesus as the Lord. And James is writing this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That word dispersion was used of uh, the uh, Jewish people, the 12 tribes of the Jewish people who had been dispersed throughout the Babylonian and Assyrian empires because of the Assyrian and then the Babylonian uh, invasion and conquest of Israel. And so many people think that when James says he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion or the diaspora, he has in his mind uh, Christian believers who are Jewish, who are scattered throughout the Babylonian and Assyrian old old empires. Uh, Some people uh, think that uh, James instead has in his mind those who were scattered from Jerusalem at the persecution that took place after Stephen's martyrdom in Acts chapter 8. Still others think that uh, James is speaking metaphorically. Uh, All Christians sense that this world is not their home. We all feel as if we have been dispersed. And perhaps you feel that. Perhaps you sense that this world is not your home. And I I would guess that in this season that we are all in, as never before, we all feel that acutely. We feel dispersed. Well, James has a word for you. And in particular... As we'll see this morning, it's a word about testing. And so he's uh, describing what to do when we go through times of testing. And in verses uh, 2 to 4, he gives his essential answer to that question. What are we to do when we go through a time of trial or difficulty or trouble or testing? And he says, uh, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, um, brothers and sisters, when the New Testament uses the word brothers, it isn't being gender specific, it's talking about the family of God. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. What what James means then by that various kinds is trials of a whole spectrum of different sorts. It's easy, isn't it, for us to think, well, I can rejoice because of this kind of trial. But the other kind of trial, that, maybe that's outside God's plan for me. But no, says James, all kinds of trials, any kind of trial, any kind of test, I have a word for you. And it is a uniquely Christian word. He says, count it all joy. (laughs) There's a surprise. 
Think what other philosophies in the world say about troubles and difficulties. There are philosophies that teach us to um, be calm in the midst of difficulty. Uh, My own culture has a strong tradition of that. Keep calm and carry on. And there are philosophies that teach us to almost ignore the suffering, um, to see that the suffering is not real. Whole Eastern philosophies are built, built upon that message. But the Christian message is different. They are trials. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Yeah, they are testing. They are difficult. They are trying and troubling. But the unique Christian message is nonetheless to count it all joy, to consider it joyful. Not that the trial is joyful, but as James will describe, it has a joyful end so why should we count it all joyful? He describes uh, in the end of this, this first paragraph, verses 3 and 4, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith, and by the way, the word trial and testing, and later in this passage, temptation, is all the same word in Greek, and you'll, you'll see the significance of that in a bit. For you know that the testing of your faith produces Steadfastness, that is um, strength of character, resoluteness, confidence, steadfastness, keeping on goingness. That's what it does. And let steadfastness have its full effect. This is the the end. Its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when here in English it says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. You mustn't misunderstand that thinking that James is saying that trials will make you sinless. The word for full effect and perfect It's the same word in the original. And both are talking about the end result, uh, teleos, when it has finished what it was designed to do. There's an end result to this testing. Let steadfastness have its end result, that you may come to that end result result that God has designed for it. And what does that mean? It means be complete or whole. That word complete is used in the Old Testament when they were taking stones to make them ready for the temple and a very special stone was an uncut stone. It's whole. It has integrity. You become integrated as a person, whole. In other words, this testing, when it has its foot effect, makes you mature. It's end result. 
and whole, lacking in nothing. And that's, the trial may be hard, of course, but that's something to rejoice about, says James. It's going to make you whole. They say, well, that's all very well, Pastor, but the trial's pretty tough, and I, I don't frankly feel much like rejoicing. How can I do it? How can I count it all joy? Well, James, very practical. Always the book of James, filled with practical advice, then explains how. And he does that from verses uh, 5 to 8, and then really throughout the rest of the section. He says, uh, verse 4, when it has its full effect, you'll be lacking in nothing that is whole, have integration, integrated, be the person that God is designing you to be. But then he says, verse 5, if any of you lacks, so you're not there yet, you can't think of it that way, you're, you're not able yet to count it all joy. If any of you lacks the wisdom or the know-how in the midst of this suffering, this testing, here's something you can do. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. So often we don't do that. If we sense that we're lacking wisdom or we sense that we're not able to approach this time of testing in the right way and it's, it's got in, into us, it's making us angry, not, certainly not joyful. And what, what do we do? So often we go to the expert. We, we search Google for the answer. We go to some human source of insight and wisdom. And of course God can use all these human sources of insight and wisdom. But it's God that we need to ask. Let him ask God. The great secret of life is to inquire of the Lord, to ask God. This is the distinction between Saul and David in the Old Testament and many other distinctions between godly Christian leaders and ungodly Christian leaders. David inquired of the Lord. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, give me the wisdom. Oh, God, show me how to survive this time of testing. Oh, Lord, please help me. Ask God. Why? He gives generously or literally simply, straightforwardly. He'll tell it to you directly. He'll give you the real deal. He'll be straightforward. Who gives generously or directly, simply to all without reproach. In other words, God is our loving Heavenly Father. He, if you go to him and say, God, I'm really struggling with this. I can't deal with this. He won't reproach you. He's your loving Heavenly Father. Uh, he'll be direct. He'll tell you what you need to do. But he won't beat you down and reproach you. And so go ask God. But there is a condition if this wisdom is to be given us. And that condition is faith. Verses 6 to 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let him ask in faith. That is, the Bible idea of faith is not make-believe or positive thinking. Faith is commitment, trust, trust God. It says, with no doubting, that word for doubting there, it's sometimes used in a positive sense to mean discerning or thinking things through. Uh, Jesus uses it in a positive sense when he encourages his disciples that they should be able to discern the sign of the times, to know what is happening. There is a place to discern, to think things through, but not when you're in the midst of suffering. Not in a time of testing. That's the time to say to God, Lord, I don't understand. I don't get it. But I trust you. Lean not on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him. And he'll make your path straight. But the person who doesn't do that, who overthinks it, if you like, they're like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind, just pushed around by circumstances. They're not steadfast. There's a new time of testing, and it pushes them that way. Their emotions drive them that way. And then there's a different kind of testing, and they're driven this way. They're constantly questioning God. God... How can you be good in this moment? That's what it's like to be not trusting God in testing. That person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That is, he's, he's double-souled, twin-souled. Half of him is trusting God, but the other half is not. And so he's driven by his emotions, by his feelings, by the circumstances. But if you ask God for wisdom and lean not upon your own understandings, but in all your ways acknowledge him, he will make your path straight. And so ask God for wisdom that you might know how to count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. Well, you say that's fine, but what does this wisdom look like in practice? And again, James is always very practical. And so then from uh, this part to the end of the section we're looking at this morning, he gives three instances of uh, of a very practical kind, the way this wisdom uh, works out. The first is with relation to money. Money. Uh, For money, uh, always... When someone goes through a time of testing, or a culture does, or society does, those who are rich and poor, it affects them differently. And so, what about money, James? And so he talks about that, verses 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. 
absolutely different from what we think. The lowly brother, that is uh, lower down the social economic scale, less wealthy, they are to boast in their exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. What does this mean? How can the lowly, the poor, be boasting in their exaltation? Because the poor brother or sister, the lowly brother or sister, the one without the nice car and the big house, they are able to see with clarity if they're spiritual, what really matters. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. They're able to focus, if spiritual, on what truly counts, the gospel, their relationship with God. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the poor can boast in their high place for they're a child of God. Don't let anyone look down on you if you, if you don't have a nice car in the car park. Don't let anyone look down on you if you can't pay for your children to go to college. Don't, don't let anyone look down on you if you, you give all that you can give to the church, but it's not as much as someone else. Don't let anyone look down on you if you're lower down the social economic scale. You're, that's not how God looks at it. You're a child of God. Stand tall. Boast in your high place. But then conversely, let the rich in, in his, boast in his humiliation. How does that work? Well, first of all, it's clear then that it's possible to be a rich Christian. Some people doubt that. But of course, here it is. The lowly brother boasts in his exaltation and the rich brother or sister, understood, let him boast in his humiliation. It's perfectly possible to be wealthy and a Christian. It's possible to be wealthy and a godly Christian, a holy Christian. Abraham was a very wealthy man and a very godly man. But having money does bring its trials. You spend so much time on things that you know are going to pass away. What's more, if you are a godly wealthy person, it comes with a burden. You know you're a steward. It comes with a huge sense of responsibility. You have these, this money and these resources that God has asked you to steward for the good of his church and the good of his kingdom. And, and how are you going to make those decisions? Who, which organization do you give to? Which organization do you not give to? It's a constant wait. And then you have to manage it all. 
And if you're godly, you know that like the flower of the grass, it will all pass, pass away. When the sun rises in August and, and, and burns up the grass to a brown color, that, that's what hap- is going to happen to all this stuff. And yet it is your job, rich Christian, to manage those resources, to steward them for the good of his kingdom. It's so easy to get distracted by things. Don't let the world puff you up. Don't listen when they say, oh, you've made a bunch of money. You must be very important. No. Boast in your humiliation. You're just a child of God. And you have the kingdom of heaven. And that's where you're investing. And that's what matters. And now the poor Christian and the rich Christian are brothers and sisters together. That's how to think about money, especially in a time of testing, uh, James. But then you say, what about sin? For in a time of testing, sin is especially tempting. Remember that word testing and tempting is the same word in Greek. And so then uh, James addresses that from verses 12 uh, to 15. How do you rejoice? You need wisdom. What about money? He's addressed that. What about sin? He's now going to talk about that, verses 12 to 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Remember that word steadfast? That steady, constant, strong, under trial or test. He's still talking about testing. For when he has stood the test or the trial, he will receive the crown of life. There's no... No crown without any cross. The cross is temporary. The crown is eternal. Which God has promised to those who love him. So stand firm. But what happens if you're tempted by the test? And of course that's often the case, isn't it? You go through a time of testing and you're you're at home with your family a lot and it's easy to lose your temper. You go through a time of testing, you spend a lot of time on the screen. And with just a couple of clicks, you can end up where you know you should not end up, looking at what you know you should not look. And it's just much closer to you. And the testing in our country with all these anger and fractious fighting and it's so easy to go I'm angry lash out on social media you know you shouldn't how how can you deal with it James will explain let no one say when he is tempted which is the word in English we use when the testing becomes a temptation but, but it's the same word in other words a test can be used for making us endure when we count it or joy and make us whole or if we approach the test in the wrong way it can become a temptation so let no one say when he's tested I'm being tempted by God God's sovereign 
He brought this into being. It's all his fault. Don't say that, James says. Why? God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He's not trying to lead you astray. So where does the testing become temptation? Where does that come from? It comes from within, James says. But each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That, that, uh, that, that way of phrasing there, lured and enticed, is actually an image from fishing. So the, 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 the temptation of the test is like, is like a bait for a fish. And inside the bait, of course, is a hook. And, and the image is we're like fish who want the bait because we're hungry for something. It's an internal desire. And we grab onto the bait without realizing that inside there's a hook. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then shifting image, verse 15, he says, then desire when it has conceived, the conception of the desire, there's some pleasure to that, there's some desire for that, otherwise it wouldn't be tempting. And it gives birth to something. But what it gives birth to is sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, when you are being tested, and that testing is leaning into temptation, think about the end. Don't think about the bait, the desire, Think about the hook. Don't think about the conception. Think about what it leads to. Think about the end. And that will give you strength to resist, James says. So when you're going through testing, count your joy. How? Ask God for wisdom. What about money? He answers that question. What about when testing becomes temptation and the sin that you're being tempted towards? He answers that question. And then he comes back to the end result from verse 16 to the 18. Do not be deceived. In other words, be wise. This is the negative of being wise. Don't be deceived or positively be wise. My beloved brothers and sisters, every good gift and every perfect gift, that word perfect is the same for full effect and perfect at the beginning of the passage, every gift that has this good end result, that's from above. God has a good end purpose in mind for this time of testing. Comes down from the Father of lights. It's a highly enigmatic phrase for God, isn't it? The father of lights. That's who God is. Our God is not the God of darkness. Our God is not the God of depression. Our God is the father of lights. And he has a good and perfect gift as an end result to this time of testing. with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. How encouraging it is that when everything seems to change around us, 
God does not change. And says James finally, if you're still wrestling with focusing on the end result of what God is doing in this time of testing so that you can count it all joy, if you're still struggling there, go back to when you became a Christian. Of his own will, verse 18, James says, he brought us forth, that is, made us new, regenerated us, converted us, made us a Christian. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, meaning the gospel. But he uses that phrase to underline that God spoke truth to us when we became a Christian. And now when he speaks this word about testing, therefore we can trust him that it is also a word of truth. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That is a sacrifice, the first fruits of the sacrifice of praise and worship to God as uh, made by him as one of his creatures. Counted all joy. I've been a pastor long enough that in my mind, I have a filing cabinet of many, many stories of Christians going through times of testing. I, I can I can recall them up. Cancer, depression. Losing a job, family friction, many, many others. But in all the time I've been a pastor, this season in which we are in now is unique in that we all are going through a time of testing. For some, it's easier than others. Some people I speak to have quite enjoyed the last few months. They tend to be introverts. Others have had a horrible time. They could hardly pay their bills. And most of us are somewhere in between. College, church. Counted all joy. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do uh, thank you for James and his faithfulness to your call in his life to be your servant and to worship Jesus, his brother, as Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for his writing that is so practical. And, Lord, this um, 
passage with which he begins about times of testing seems especially relevant to us. We know, Lord, that some people it's been a not too stressful time. For others it's been very hard. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom we need to be able to count it all joy and to have steadfastness and to be made mature and whole as your people. We pray, Lord, that you give us the right attitude to money, that those who are less well off among us would boast in their high place and the wealthy among us would boast in their low place. We pray, Lord, you give us the right approach to temptation, to not be lured in by the bait, but see where it's going and flee from temptation. And we pray, Lord, that the end result of this time of testing in our lives and in the life of this, your church, would be increased steadfastness, maturity, increased wholeness. We'd be more like you, Lord Jesus. And therefore we pray, Lord, that we would count it all joy. Help us in this, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.